If you've got a pew Bible, open it, well, if you've got any Bible, open it to Mark chapter 7. Um, if it's a pew Bible, that's going to be page 1564. And I'm going to start in verse 24 and read all the way to 8, 21. We're going to cover an astoundingly large passage, but that's just the way it is. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard of him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an, evil, by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through, and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Sorry. There, some people brought him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and to set before the people and they did so. They had a few small fish as well and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. Sorry. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, Is this because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? 
When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? So we have a lot to cover this morning. Um... Um, I have a Samoyed Hussey that I've spoken of before. His name is Samwise Achilles Gamgee. No, his name is Samwise Achilles Gibson, actually. Um, and uh, he, can't, he, he doesn't have any fight in him. That's why we call him Achilles, because it's ironic. Um, but he is a beggar. Like, you can even see the form here. He's got pretty good um, going on. And um, he's just, he is a constant beggar, in fact. We call him Stewie because he's all, it seems like he's always trying to kill my wife by standing right behind her whenever she's in the kitchen. Um, yeah, that's a family guy joke. You might not get that. Um, and uh, so he, but he's constantly, and we, you know, we, you know, we tell him not to beg and we tell him to do this and tell him to do that. And he just, it doesn't matter. He's, he just, he just knows there's food. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Syrophoenician woman and, um, and her coming to beg at Jesus. And, you know, the things people always go on about about that passage is how mean Jesus is to this woman, Right. I mean, if you go and you talk to like secular scholars or people that are trying to pick a fight with the New Testament, they always talk about how Jesus is a bigot there. And, um, you know, it just totally misses the significance of begging and what it is. And we've totally lost it because we're, we're so, um, so interested in our, um, in our status and our sort of, our dignity. But I mean, I think that there's a certain kind of insight that my dog has that we don't. That um, if, you, if you play your rights, oftentimes you don't have any rights and you walk away empty-handed. But the, the, the difference with begging is that you're, you're going after the goodwill of the person who has whatever resource you need, right? I mean, that's what begging is. It's to say, I don't have any claim to this. You, you cannot give it to me. But here's what I know. You've got it, and there's at least a party that wants to give it to me. And if I throw away recklessly every pretense that I have a right to it by begging, instead of just asking, if I just plead, the more likely it is that the goodwill is going to rise up in you, and you're going to want to give the resources that you've actually got. There is a certain—there's actually a certain theological dignity to begging— And it is a dynamic that the more successful we are, um, the more culturally, culturally elite we are, the more respect people give us, the more we rise in the corporate ladder or structural ladder, the, the more we are full of rights, the more we forget what we did as children when we really wanted something and we knew we couldn't force it. Um, and though I want to choke my dog sometimes, there's a lesson here about begging. And I th- the thing that I think links all these five different episodes together is the image Mark's trying to put across of Jesus as provider. 
I mean, the, the theme here is that Jesus is an amazing provider. In every case, he provides, except there's, there's one sort of caveat that he's not a tame provider. It's not an equation. It's not, so, he's not sort of this food bank where if everybody who comes, everybody gets the same thing. It's not like that because you see how he treats every single situation differently. So, so Jesus is very unpredictable. But in every case, he comes through. In every case, he provides. So, I want to look at Jesus first, and then I want to come back to this woman and talk about how faith is meant to interact with this kind of Savior, an untamed provider, which is what Jesus is. So, there's two kinds of providers— there's, there's predictable provision that's kind of like math, that if you put something in, you get something out. It's, it's, you know how to manipulate it. You know how to get what you want. Kind of like one of those little um, lick water bottles that you give hamsters. There's water in it. You lick that little ball, a little bit of water comes out, and that's how it works. It always works that way, right? But in a lion pride, there's a different kind of provider. There's a very dangerous, very prowling, very secretive, very— successful provider called the lioness. And she just goes out and rips the throats out of animals and brings them back to her cubs and husband and so forth. Um, I've never understood the self-respect of male lions, but that's just for another time. Um, But you see, both of these things are absolute providers. They're providers. But they're totally different kinds of providers. Right? One, if you whine at it, nothing happens. The other one, I wouldn't want to do that. It's a little bit like whining at my wife, you know? And so it's, it's really important to recognize that just because Jesus is a very loving, caring, dutiful, parental kind of provider, it's very important that our theological imaginations don't domesticate our image of him. Because here's what we need to recognize. What we think about God does not affect our daily life so much as what we imagine about God. Now, hopefully there is some relationship between what we think about God and what we imagine about God, but it's our theological imagination that harnesses and moves our emotions. And we need to understand that. If we can't imagine something generally consistent about God— Whatever we really feel like we think and imagine will pull our doctrine in whatever direction it goes. There's a great quote from Blaise Pascal about this. Pascal wrote against European rationalism, and he said, Put the world's greatest philosopher on a plank that is wider than it needs to be, but that's over a precipice below. Although his reason may convince him that he's safe, his imagination will prevail. He'll be terrified. And and, and there's a way in which our theology is like that. We we can say, well, I believe Jesus provides. But if we don't feel like, if our imagination is that God is distant, for whatever reason, we could believe that for whatever reason, just your dad could have been a little bit distant. And you have, it's gotten into your theological imagination that God is therefore distant because they must be the masculine figures in our lives. And that therefore I can read all I want about Jesus as a provider. doesn't matter because I'm going to imagine God is distant. And so when it comes to my needs, am I going to pray? I'm not going to pray. Why would, I, why would I pray? Because I don't really feel like God is close, no matter what the Bible says about provision, because my theological imagination is that he's distant. That's why, one of the reasons why we have gospels and not just epistles. That's one of the reasons why the Bible has stories in it. 
to open up our imagination. Because if we don't understand the, the lack of tameness in Jesus' provider, we'll think he's like one of those little bottles and we'll get really frustrated with him because we're licking the wheel and the water's not coming out the way we want it to. And so what do we give up? We, we give up the doctrine that Jesus is the great provider, which is the theme, one of the great themes of the Bible. God is the great provider. But if we don't understand the caveat, we throw away the doctrine. <clears throat> okay. So let me put, try to put this into perspective a little bit, the whole Syrophoenician woman thing. So Jesus has actually already tried to have basically an instructional retreat with his disciples twice. He's actually tried to do it more than that. If you read Mark carefully, there's a number of places already Jesus has tried to take his disciples and get away because the salvation of the world hangs on that, okay? So let's get a little perspective here. The disciples have to be ready when the crucifixion and resurrection happens. They have to be ready. So Jesus has to get away and teach them because they apparently don't get it. Every turn, right? Do they get it? No. No, no, no. They don't, they don't get it, right? So he's got to teach them. So he, he's trying to get away, and every time he gets away, what happens? Like a thousand people show up, right? So he's been in this red circle area um, for most of Mark. So now he goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go all—this is like six, a 60-mile trek— to this totally pagan coastal city of Tyre. That's kind of like you were having Bible conferences in Birmingham and you decided to go to New Orleans to Bourbon Street to lay low. Okay, that's, that's basically what's happening here, okay? And so Jesus goes all the way to Tyre because he'll be relatively unknown there. It's a Greek area. They don't know much about him. He can lay low. He can teach his disciples and this can get done, right? And he, he just got there, right? And this woman hears about it and she shows up Right? I mean, like, so they sit down and they're like, okay, so Jesus is like, okay, so let me try to put this in perspective. You know? I mean, can you imagine? And so this woman comes in and he's just like, oh my gosh. And she's like, um, my daughter has a deed. And so, and now, you, you, to understand the context of this a little bit too is that um, this sort of thing isn't supposed to happen culturally, okay? Um, a woman is not supposed to approach a man like this. Um, she's Greek. He's Jewish, right? And Mark makes a really big deal of that, right? She says, uh, he says, a Greek woman who is Syrian and Phoenician by birth, right? So the, he's trying to make really clear that this woman is not Jewish, not part of the covenant community of God, not part of God's people, doesn't understand. It's really clear, right? And so this one, so this is, this is kind of bold, what she's doing. Now, the reason that's important to understand kind of the brazenness of this lady is because it puts in context the way Jesus treats her, right? If she was this little mousy woman, I don't think Jesus would have said this. Um, some of you were here a few weeks ago when Alicia Lundahl was up here talking about—do you remember that? Christian school? Okay, this woman is a lot like her, okay? Like, just really like, hey, Jesus! Like, and so he goes—and so his, and his disciples are here. Now, think about this. Jesus has been waiting months to teach his disciples about real faith, now here's this woman who's come in and she's begging him for something. This is, an, this is a very significant opportunity, right? So he turns around and he goes, you know, it's just, it's not right to take the kids' food, right, and, and give it to their, do their dogs, right? <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to work. Is that funny? Um, 
You know, and so basically what he's saying is there's a table and you actually don't have a right to the table. Now, some people think that this is a Jew-Gentile thing. It may be a little bit, but really this is a disciple's not apostles, non-apostle gig. That what, the, what the kids have to eat is the history of redemption and what's happening, how the Old Testament fits into it, and what Jesus really is, and that he's actually the Christ. And like, that's the meal that's being had here. And it's an important one. And it's, it wouldn't be right for Jesus to just go, well, you know, this isn't really important. Let me just go heal your daughter. I mean, this is, this is a legitimate leadership issue here for Jesus because this has got to get done. But he cares about these crowds. In fact, that's why he hasn't done this for three months right? Or a year and a half. We don't really know what the timetable is, right? And so, but here's the thing. I think the reason why he felt like he could say that is because of the sort of person he, he recognized he was dealing with here. Because she comes back with this, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs get food at the table, right? Um, and if you've got kids, they get more than they should, right? Um, and the reason this is significant is because she, and I'll come back to her faith in a little while, but what I want to get at right here is she, she's happy to argue within his paradigm, right? She, she doesn't go, well, that's not quite right, is it, Jesus? She just says, she says, yeah, but every, with everything that you say, it's true. Here's what I know. Because of how much food is on this table, the dogs are bound to get some. See, see, she recognizes what the disciples at the end of this passage still haven't learned. That Jesus has all the providing resources necessary to accomplish everything. He can still feed the kids and cast a demon out of her daughter, and it's not, he's not going to break a sweat. Right? And he goes, you got it. You don't even have to be at this seminar. You can go. The, you know, the demons left your daughter. That's it. Right? Now, I've got to kind of blow through some of these other ones a little bit faster, but here's, here's what I want to get at. In each situation in this passage, what you'll find if you, if you study it later this afternoon or whatever, is that in each case, Jesus provides what's needed, but he does it in, in, in two different—based on two principles. One is based on the, the actual need of the particular person he's actually dealing with which causes him to act differently in every case. And two, he always acts in a way that demonstrates that the integrity of their faith is more important than the thing they want. Those are two very important points. That he does it contingent— because you might say, well, why am I going through this when so-and-so isn't if we're both serving the same absolutely loving God? Right? You're going to think that at some point in your life. Why am I, why is this happening to me? Why was I born like this? Why are my giftings this instead of that? Why am I this kind of person instead of that kind of person? Why are, why did this set of circumstances happen instead of that set of circumstances? Well, here's the reason. Jesus is in a licky bottle. He is an untamed provider, and he deals with us based on the specifics of who we are recognizing that, and then get, providing for us specifically tailored to what that is within the realm of providence. An example of this is the deaf-mute guy later, right? So he's just called out this woman, right? So the woman comes to him, he's like, oh, my you know, the food of the dogs, blah, 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 right? That's kind of cheeky, isn't it? But then a verse later, what happens? <clears throat> he's in this other place, and these people bring this deaf-mute guy to him, okay? So this guy doesn't come to him, he gets dragged, and he's deaf and he's mute. 
Okay, so in, in case you don't put this together, these sorts of people get picked on, right? I mean, this guy, <clears throat> this guy has been <clears throat> treated in certain ways. He's been, he's been considered, you know, probably a lot of people considered him punished by God if John 9 tells us anything. I mean, there's, and so he comes to Jesus, he's brought, and Jesus treats him with absolute tenderness, Right? He doesn't make a spectacle about him. He takes, he takes him and the people who brought him away from the crowd. He gets in a place where they're relatively alone. And then he, um, he interacts healing-wise in a way in which he can participate, right? Because see, if you've got a blind guy, you can say, receive your sight, right? Because he can hear. Or anybody else he heals. If somebody has, is lame, whatever, he can go, we'll be healed, we'll be healed. You know, rise up and your faith has healed you, blah, 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 right? Because they can hear. This guy can't hear. So how does he connect faith with healing? How does he interact in such a way that this isn't just magic? How does Jesus demonstrate that the thing that he needs isn't quite as important as the faith that accompanies it? Why is this the only place where Jesus does weird things to heal the person? There's only one other place. It's in the next chapter. And there's a very specific theological reason for that that I'll get into next time I preach. But this is the only place where he puts his fingers in his ears and he spits and he like rubs it on his tongue. And then he, he, put, he puts, and then he, and then he sighs. Like you can really tell he's about to do something. He expresses a lot of emotion physically. And then he says, be opened. You see, he's interacting with this deaf person in a way that the deaf person can fully participate faith-wise in the healing itself. Because he's deaf, you see. And so the way Jesus does, treats this guy is totally different than he treats this other woman. Totally different. But in both cases, he is pulling out faith when he provides in both cases. And in both cases, he's treating them differently based on the person that's come to him. He treats a brash woman brashly. He treats an emotionally broken, disabled person kindly. Right? Same thing with the 4,000. You go, well, wait a second. He just fed them, right? So where's the bringing out faith part? Guess who gets fed? People who are willing to come and follow him for three days without food because they wanted to hear his teaching. They were desperate for what he had to teach them. Those people, he has, com he has compassion on them to make sure that their physical needs are met. And so he makes sure that they're fed. And even with the Pharisees, you're like, yeah, but he just yelled at the Pharisees. Yeah, but guess what? That's exactly what they needed. Sometimes you need just what you—the loving thing is a kick in the pants. Sometimes in the front of the pants if you're far enough gone. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he, he, these guys needed him to do this. And now think about this. He had been giving signs and signs and signs. I mean, it's not like Jesus couldn't do anything. And they're like, sure, what's the sign? And he's like, well, I'm not going to do that. He had just been giving sign after sign after sign. In fact, the, the, the only other place in the Bible— um, in the Greek Bible, the, the Septuagint of the, for the Old Testament and the New Testament, in which that word for deaf mute is used is in a passage in Isaiah that refers to the Messiah coming. So that in that chapter, he had done a miracle that Mark probably intends for us to connect with the, the kind of miracles the Messiah would do to be a sign that he's the Messiah. He gets the Pharisees, he's like, I'm not doing it. Because it's exactly what they need. In every case, Jesus is the great provider. In every case, even ridiculously so, to feed a crowd that has 4,000 men plus whoever else besides. 
right? And it's important because how does, how does Mark press this home? At the end of the passage, Jesus turns to his disciples and he goes, guys, seriously, seriously? You think that this is about bread? Honestly? Come on. I mean, I was just telling you, because what's, what's going on in the boat? The, what's going on in the boat is Jesus is saying, watch out for the people who will, who will destroy the faith. You need to watch out for Herod. You need to watch out for the Pharisees because they will take, they will take this, what I'm telling you, and they will twist it and they will change it. They'll cram it into their system and they'll figure out how they can use it politically and they will destroy salvation by faith through grace. They'll destroy what I'm teaching you. And, and the, the disciples are still trying to figure out if Jesus can provide. And Jesus is like, he's, guys, don't you see? Provision is not the issue. It's not the issue. Whether or not, I, I could feel, he's like, okay, there were 5,000 people, right? 5,000 men. It could have been 10,000. He was like, and how many loaves were there? Well, there were like 15. And how many basketfuls did you pick up? And the word for basket he uses isn't the word for this. It's, the, it's, the, it's this basket, right? How many basketfuls did you pick up? And he's like, a lot. Yes, right. And then there were 4,000 men plus, and then how many, and they're like, yeah, I think we had seven old basketballs. He's like, is it dawning on you? I mean, are, is this connecting yet that provision isn't the issue? It's not the issue. The issue is, the issue is faith. The issue is, is the provision I'm offering drawing out faith? Are you connecting with it? Are you accepting not only that you need to turn to me for, for provision, but that you need to do it in a certain way? You need to believe. Because every time I provide, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to bring out faith. Right? In, in himself, in Jesus, in what he's come to teach and show and demonstrate and be. We're going to have to skip a little bit. So the second thing that I think we need to look at is that the kind of faith that Jesus is, is drawing out, and the Syrophoenician woman is one of the best examples of this, is a faith that is, that is very bold and that is very humble. It's very bold and very humble. Um, <clears throat> the Syrophoenician woman has two very important characteristics. The first is, is that she doesn't take offense. Now that's really important. And it, it's—I don't know if it's been just as important all the way in the history of human beings. I think human beings are probably the sort of people that like to take offense. So I don't want to say that this—you know, we're the most offendable people ever in the history of the world. I just know that we're dang offendable. Um, and two of the things that are at the very center of what a human being is in Christian doctrine, um, besides that human beings are infinitely are incredibly valuable to God— the two negative first points of a Christian anthropology or a Christian understanding of what a human being is, is that we're sinful, terribly sinful, and deluded about how sinful we are, and incredibly limited and small-minded, and unable to get our heads around the intricate, detail-based dynamics of even the most simple processes. That we think we have a better planning ability than we really do, even with all the software we've developed and all the things that we can tweak, that we're limited and that we're very sinful and we're deluded about both of those things. We think we're less limited. We think we're less sinful than we actually are. Now, that'll offend you. That'll offend you a little bit like if you were being called a dog and that you had all the rights and privileges of a canine. 
And one of the, th- one of the reasons this woman is such a great example is because it, that doesn't phase her. She just accepts it. She goes, yep, no problem. No problem. And th- that kind of humility is absolutely necessary for Christian conversion. To be able to enjoy all that God has to give, all that God has to teach, all the, all the distance God has to take us, it has to begin with this unoffendable spirit that's ready to beg. If we cannot lay down our dignity, we cannot be saved. And if after we accept Jesus, we can't continue to lay down our dignity, we can't be changed. Escaping the rigor of our limitedness and our sin is going to take some ability to beg, some shamefulness, some ability to not be seen as important or well put together, because we, we have to know something of our need before we can be helped, right? But the other thing is this, is that we have to be very bold, too. I mean, this, this woman could have just gone, okay, okay, but she didn't. She pushed, I don't, I don't know if she had gotten word that Jews like to argue. I don't know what it is. But she, she you know, r- rabbis will, will bait you. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a rabbi, but they will bait you. And you're supposed to push back on it. That's part of the, it's kind of like the more aggressive satiric, uh, not satiric, uh, Socratic method. It's sort of like, it's the Socratic method that's in, intended to get you angry, right? It's fun. And so she's like, no, well, wait, wait, even the dogs get food, don't they? She's bold. And if, if we can't be bold, it doesn't matter how humble we are, we can't be saved. And that, this is, a, this is a, a really critical balance, because too much pride, and we'll dismiss our sinfulness, we'll dismiss our limitedness, and we'll end up like the Pharisees. We'll, we'll come to Jesus and we'll be like, you prove it to us! The evidence you've given is insufficient for my rational faculties. You know? You get, you, you get people who think that they're drawing these amazingly scientific lines in the sand about evidence that have nothing to do with rationality or the normal bases of evidence that matter, right? You get, you get people in the scientific field still, still holding on to logical positivism like it's still the holy grail when philosophers haven't believed in it for 20 years. I mean, you get this kind of mentality, not just out there, but you get that in here too because there are things we don't really want to believe and one of the ways we get around them is by just artificially raising our bar of evidence by which we'll accept that. When your bar of evidence is just what you're going to accept, evidence is, is by its very nature subjective. You'll believe when you've heard enough that you accept that you'll believe the thing. That's why evidence isn't proof. And almost nothing interesting can be proved. That's a lecture on epistemology. Sorry about that. Um, But listen, also too much despair and we'll miss it. Too much despair and we'll miss it. You can can be as humble, be like, "Um, I'm very humble and so I won't, I'm not going to press in on this thing. Well, guess what? You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And and here's one of the reasons why both of these are important issues because um, both— Pride and despair are self-salvation models. 
Okay, this is very important to get because a lot of people would say, well, of course, pride is a self-salvation model, right? I'm good. I'm important. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to win. I'm a winner. Therefore, I can save myself. That's a self-salvation model. Everybody accepts that. But, but you know what? Despair is also a self-salvation model. It's pride. It's another form of pride. Despair, in certain ways, if it's not mentally chemical, in, an, in, a, in a certain way, it is another form of self-righteousness and self-salvation. Because it is not believing that God saves us. It is a rejection of the offer of grace. It is essentially that you will not let yourself off the hook because you're just not going to do that. Even if the one you actually offended lets you off the hook. So we sin against God. We sin against another person. That person forgives us. God forgives us and provides for our moral debt through Christ. And we still won't forgive ourselves. We fall into despair. What we're saying is we stand, we we have better moral faculties than the person we offended in God himself. That's what we're ultimately saying. There are ways in which despair and gloom are are the bondages of another kind of pride and self-salvation. And they'll destroy us. John Newton wrote to a guy who, he wrote to him because he he was very depressed. And so he writes to John Newton and he says, I'm really depressed. I don't believe Jesus will save me. And he goes on and on. Now, now John Newton was no, um, was no new guy to sin. I mean, this is a guy who'd been a slave trader. And I mean, just the most debauched life you could imagine before he got converted. And Newton was also no stranger to depression. He, he had William Cooper, who was a hymn writer in the, in the Wesleyan movement, lived in his house for more than 10 years and was chronically depressed for the vast majority of that time. In fact, one of the reasons we have great hymns by Newton is because he challenged William Cooper in, a, in an attempt to help him get out of his very deep depressions to write a hymn a day with him about the glories and greatness and love of God, hoping that as—, as Cooper would come out of himself and, and think about and write this poetry about the greatness and glory of God, it would rehabilitate him out of his depression. Now, I think, I, I suspect that, that Cooper was very chronically, physiologically depressed. And, and Cooper never fully got better. He came out, he went back in, and Newton, lived, and Newton kept Cooper at his house for years. So he's no stranger to depression. But here's what he wrote back to this fellow. He said, You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. But you are expressing not only a low opinion of yourself, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer. You complain about your sin, but when we examine your complaints, they're so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they're little better than the worst evils you complain of. Let me tell it in a story um, like this. Imagine um, there's a guy who's <clears throat> who goes out hiking in Alaska and he gets lost, okay? He's not a very good backpacker. He kind of gets off the trail, and, he, and he's literally—he is in the middle of nowhere. He runs out of food— gets sick, and um, he, he's, he's just out of gas. And he, he finally, he, he comes down this valley to this lake, and he kind of gets to the shore, and he, he drops the last, the little things he was carrying. He's, he's just, he's done. He's toast. And he lays down by this lake, and he's just in complete gloom, complete despair. He's going to die, okay? He's just like, this is where I'm going to die. And he turns his head, and he sees something kind of weird. There are these trees, but he sees a rope, He's like, 
We're in the middle of nowhere. There's a rope. And so he, he, you know, like he pries himself up and he goes over to this tree and he sees that there's this rope that goes up over this branch and comes down and there's a cooler hanging from it. Right? He's 100 miles in the middle of nowhere. He's like, what the, what the heck? And he looks around a little more and there's this, he sees this big metal box um, that doesn't even have a lock on it. And he goes, he's thinking, this is odd. So he unties the cooler and he lowers it and he opens it up and there's ice and there's five steaks on ice, chopped potatoes, some vegetables, two bottles of wine, and a six-pack of beer. He's like, what? And so he goes over to the, to the big metal box, and he opens it up, and there's all these fishing rods inside of it. And it dawns on him, this is one of those lakes people fly planes into for those, like, upscale fishing trips, right? So they'll get on one of those little planes, and they'll fly into these remote lakes, and they've stashed this stuff here. So what this means is not only do they have food, but there must be a client coming in the next couple of days. There's going to be a plane flying in, right? Now, he could say, he could close up the cooler and go, you know what? I didn't bring this in. I'm not going to eat it. I'm either going to take care of myself or I'm going to die. I'm not going to, not, I'm not going to, you know, let this stuff interfere, right? And he can die and he'll be dead because of his stupidity and his pride, right? Now, what if he, what if he said, Instead, what if he despaired and he said, he said, yeah, this is here, but he said, but it doesn't belong to me. And whoever it is, they're counting on it. They wouldn't want me to take it. And, you know, and I can't just sort of do this. Um, and he dies. And you know, we, you know what I would say? I'd say he's just as stupid. That's not more noble. That's just as stupid. Can you imagine if you were the, you were the fisherman, you fly and you find this guy dead and he left a little note, didn't want to eat your food. You know, at first, if I was the fisherman guide guy, at first I'd feel a little bad for him, but then I'd say, how stupid for him to believe so little in my generosity. He thought I would be that ungenerous that I would begrudge him a flight, a steak, and a beer to save his life? And if that would be an affront on a a fisherman, think of the affront it is to God for us to be so deeply sinful for him to make abundant provision and for us to go, well, you know, I'm not that worthy. Or I don't know about that or whatever. It's really just self-righteousness. We're self-atoning. We really feel, if we, if we feel bad enough and we, that somehow that, it doesn't atone for anything. Listen, according to scripture, you can feel as bad as you want for as much as you want, as long as you want. It has no atoning effect at all. It doesn't help. It doesn't make, and it shouldn't make anybody think better of you. It doesn't change what you did. It does nothing. All it does is make you miserable. It really is just a continued, aggressive aggravation and insult against the glory and mercies of God. There's some story told about Alexander the Great that he'd fought many battles and one of his generals finally came to him. And people who fought with Alexander the Great were like, they were like gone for 20 years, right? He just, let's just take more of the world. It's got to end here anytime. Let's just, then we'll have conquered the whole world, right? Um, so, He's like, you know, 30 battles in. They're like halfway to India. And this, this general comes in and he says, um, Sire, he said, um, my eldest daughter is going to get married. Um, I, I have no money to do it. I've been fighting for 15 years by your side. Um, and I was wondering if you would be willing to pay for the wedding of my daughter. Um, I, w- I would like for her to marry well. I'd like for her to have a good wedding. And um, would you consider my request? And um, Alexander the Great apparently said, 
no problem, just go talk to the treasurer and he'll give you what you need. You can send it back to your family. So the, the general goes to the treasurer and I guess he asks for this in, enormous sum of money. Just, I mean, w- way beyond what anybody had ever heard of a wedding costing. And so the treasurer kind of goes, okay, just hold on one second. And so he goes to Alexander the Great and he, and he, and he goes, listen, Alexander, you're not, you're not going to believe this. The, look, look at what this guy asked for. And he shows Alexander the Great, right? And he thought Alexander the Great would fly off the handle and just be really angry and just be like that, you know? And, and, he, and the, the story goes that he laughed and he said, give it to him. And the, the treasurer's like, what? He said, no, give it to him. And he says, well, why? And Alexander said, because he pays me a great compliment. Because in asking for that sum, he shows that he believes that I'm both rich and generous. Give it to him. And to understand the gospel, we have to understand that there has to be a boldness to our faith where we come and we ask for God to give to us salvation and life and peace and hope because he is the great provider and because it does us no good to despair when he stands ready to give to us so long as we recognize that he's not the bottle, he's the lioness. So long as we recognize that when he gives provision, when he pours it out because of our boldness, he will do it on the basis of his own providence, his own will, his own design of love for us. And his design is not to give us all the bread we want or to make sure that we're as healthy as we want or to make sure that we have all the money we want. His design for us is faith. His, for, his design for us is to see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ that transforms us from the insides and makes us into new men and women that will shine in glory forever in relationship to the one true God who is all good, all beauty, all glory. And that is his one great purpose, not our dramatic immediate comfort. And we will be comforted in keeping with that great plan of ours. So long as you remember that he's the lion, it's not the bottle. Let us be bold in coming to him for what we need, recognizing that the main thing he wants to draw out is this kind of humble, bold faith in the great provider. And some of you probably need to apply this by actually coming up for prayer when I dismiss for the people who are up here to pray with you. Because some of us need to start practicing begging One way to practice this kind of faith is begging. It is the humility of throwing off our self-interest and the boldness of coming and leaning completely on the fact that the one we come to has the provision and he wants to give it. I think this passage would have us learn something from my dog. Father, I pray that you'd help us as people who've come to learn about you and to believe in you, that you teach us from this passage. Help us to be the kind of people that compliment you by believing you are both rich and generous. Help us to be people who do not um, try to self-save either in pride or despair, but draw us out in faith, Father. Deal with us in keeping with who we are in a way that will draw us to yourself, Father. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and provide for us the spiritual insight and direction we need. Regenerate us, Father, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts and help us to be the kind of beggars that learn real dig- the real dignity of pleading with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.